if I'm sharing with you now some of the skeletons in my closet, we're also asking our clients to share some of their skeletons. If I'm going to ask them to really listen to each other, I need to really listen to them. If I'm going to ask them that maybe their insight will come when they dream about it, then I also need to be ready to go that deep and dream about things because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Have you ever been told you should get a more sensible career? On this show, we speak with creators and artists in Asia who ignored that advice to find success in their creative field. We'll learn how they paved their own path, dealt with roadblocks and challenges, and gained hard-earned lessons on their way to building a unique and singular foolish career. I'm your host, Timmy Sitanko. If there's anything we know now, it's that we don't know what's coming next. For Keith Tumimi, whose job is to help brands and companies innovate, the academic rigor and practical experience his work requires is now paired with so-called soft skills like vulnerability, active listening, and positivity. Adding these to our toolbox may be the way forward for a more resilient world, because we are, all of us, just trying to figure it all out. So the first question we ask everyone on the podcast, what kind of creativity were you exposed to growing up? Wow. You just go straight in there, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> There's no like preamble. Hi, it's just hardcore, man. All right, it's going to be that kind of podcast. You know, it's just your childhood. It's nothing you need to make up. Just your childhood. <laughs> <laughs> man, just my, my childhood was like in, in, in te- intense, insane. Because I grew up in Iraq. I mean, I grew up in England and Iraq. But I was born in Iraq, and I, up till the age of eight, I spent most of my time in Iraq. Probably, if you looked at it from the outside, it was like drab colors and everything. But the time, I just remember it as an amazing period. Did you grow up in Baghdad? No, I was in Basra, in the okay. south. Deep south. Dirty, yeah. dirty south. Yeah, baby. Wow. <laughs> and, what, and so what was the creativity like for you in your memories? My brothers are a bit older than me. They, we would make these huge train sets going around the house. And as a kid, I just remember it as being this huge, huge place. And these train stations in b- between the different rooms and the, the train would run around different rooms. We used to sleep on the roof when it was hot in the, in the summertime. I remember one day, I mean, there was, it was maybe four or five in the morning, and I opened the door and there was this music. My dad loved classical music, still does. So... There's just this huge classical music sound, like an orchestra in the house playing. And going down and finding him working on his scientific projects. When Keith was nine years old, his family had to leave Iraq to escape Saddam Hussein's regime. We couldn't all come together because it was a bit of a secret exit. Because my, my dad at that time had quite a senior role in the university. And the Ba'ath Party guys, which was Saddam Hussein's party, were already in touch with him. It was all a bit kind of dodgy. My two brothers left first, and then they split up. One stayed with the grandmother, one stayed with, with our uncle and auntie and their family. I was the youngest, so me and my mum came later. And then we stayed with my grandmother as well. And then my dad waited six months, got all the money he could, put it in a suitcase, and left with a suitcase of cash, left everything behind. So then he turned up my grandmother's. At that point, it was just too many people. This was in a small village called Letchworth in the countryside. Then my dad got a posting back with Southampton University where he'd, he had worked before. So we got this, I can't remember what it was. It was a kludgy old Ford or Datsun or something. We loaded up all our meager possessions, gathered the kids from different places, 
drove down to Southampton. The car broke down on the way. There's smoke coming out of it. And we're all like, this is a disaster. Our life is a complete mess. And then finally got down to Southampton. Uh, and that's where our new life started. Keith went to university to study computer science, but was a lot more engaged in student politics. He became student union president, a year that started on a high note, but ending in him having to resign the post. Those things that I loved, uh, <laughs> including illicit substances and reggae music, but I didn't know what career you could have <laughs> with Gandria. I had no idea what to do. So I, I did computer science. I didn't really enjoy it at the time. I don't really like computers. <laughs> I, prefer, I prefer human beings and computers. So I was like, at first, I was like, oh, I've had enough of that. There was also an interest in politics, partly because of everything that happened in Iraq. You know, politics was just a part of life for the Arab world at that point in time. So I ended up being the president of the students' union. It started really well. We did really good things, actually. We set up a um, scholarship fund because there was some money left over after a dispute between the student union and the Polytechnic. This was the time of the student loans. Up until then, all education was free for British nationals. Then they brought in student loans. All the students were protesting. There was poll tax. There was riots. All that sort of stuff was going on. But I had quite a good relationship. So I said, look, we're going to have to occupy your historic grade one listed building on Regent Street. <laughs> but we, we promise we'll look after it. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm going to need to make some demands and we're going to need to get something back, right? So that people feel good and don't trash the place. I really don't want the place to be trashed. I don't want to go to prison for that. Okay. And I don't want to destroy the property, but I do believe in what we're doing. And I think actually we can cooperate and make some progress. So we had to sit in 24 hours <laughs> and it just became this huge rave. And I'm like, this is <laughs> scary because we're just going to destroy this, this incredible historic building. And we blocked the traffic, did all that sort of stuff. And at the end, we're like, here's our demands. We want better facilities in the library. We want a better student union, blah, blah, blah. And we'd like to set up a scholarship with this money. So we did. First year, a Palestinian student studied with that scholarship. But then there was this whole crazy debacle. We asked a friend of ours to be the next president. He didn't want to do it. Um, and then another friend of ours uh, looked like uh, they were going to win. But they were in the Socialist Workers' Party. And we're like, it's just really not, not a bad thing. So then my friend hatched a scheme to, to kind of, uh, what, what's the right phrase? When you tamper with the election, what's the right phrase? To kind of uh, fix, fix the election? Box stuffing. Yeah, something like that. So we're going to do that. And then this whole thing came to light. So it ended up in chaos and disaster, basically. So then I left and I was paranoid and it was all a mess. I kind of drifted into the gray economy. I was doing illegal things, basically. You know, I was stealing things, selling them, living in a squat. It was really dark times. Well, this is such a surprising story because when I was researching you, obviously there's nothing about this online. Yeah. And your LinkedIn is, looks like it was like a straight line from, yeah. I went to school, I did this consulting thing, I found myself in Asia. Yeah. The rest is history. But no, you actually were a rabble rouser. More than anything, I was lost. I had this idea once, uh, a campaign for truth on LinkedIn. I should put my real life story on LinkedIn, but everyone should do it because everyone's LinkedIn is a lie. So we should just get everyone to update their LinkedIn. Maybe we should do that. Should we do that? Yeah, let's think of a hashtag for the campaign. Both wonderful things and terrible things happened during that period of time. But behind it all, I was lost. There's certain realities that people have that they don't talk about, that they don't express 
And the more that I've got on, the more I feel that it's really important to be able to express that. The, my darkness wouldn't have been quite as dark if, if there was ways and means to talk about it. And you, you think about the kind of things that people end up feeling. So imposter syndrome is a very common feeling, right? Basically, there's two types of people in the world. There's the people who have this terrible feeling that they don't know what they're doing. They're just making it up as they go along and they're just aware of that. And it gives you anxiety, right? And then there's other people who don't know what they're doing and they're making up as they go along and they don't realize it. They think they're brilliant. So actually, to an extent, we're all just making it up as we go along. And it's better to have a little bit of honesty about that. And when you do have honesty about that, it's liberating. It's liberating to know that actually I am a bit of imposter. And truth be told, most people, I mean, how many real bona fide 100% experts are there who've researched a topic deeply not to just try and get a paper published and everything they say on their LinkedIn is 100% true and everything that they've ever pitched to anyone, they know 100% it's right, bang on, it's going to work. That's not life. And that's going to be less and less what life is about because change is happening faster and faster. So I think sometimes you just need to embrace the fact that we don't necessarily know. And we're kind of making stuff up as we go along. So that's one that I see a lot of. Something that some people have will be that sense of survivor's guilt. I didn't have any sort of name to describe it, but I felt hugely guilty for having got out of Iraq and for having other family members who were still there and terrible things happened to many of them. I talked about it with my dad and he obviously felt it very deeply because he was you know, deeply embedded in society. As you go on, you find out that's very common for people to have been through um, things that, that might have been traumatic, but maybe affected other people more than them, and they managed to get away. Feelings of shame, because I thought maybe some of my sexual preferences were out there and taboo. And nowadays, everything is available online. You can see it all. But in those days, I don't know, am I a pervert? Am I, is there something wrong with me? So there's that kind of shame. And then there, there was a kind of shame that's just attached with not knowing what, what you're doing, feeling guilt, feeling like maybe you're weird, and then trying to hide all of this stuff. Shame is such a deeply, deeply powerful thing. Anyone who struggles with any of those things, I recommend looking up Brené Brown, The Power of Vulnerability. I'm very lucky and thankful in my career now. I, I get to do a lot of this sort of thinking and research, and I get to use it in the workshops that I run now. And so when Brene Brown talks about vulnerability, it's really powerful because the people who feel disconnected, it's because they have a fear, they have a shame. They're like, if people knew what I'm really like, people knew what I'm really about, I would be finished. I would be exercised. I'd be an outcast. And so there's this excruciating feeling around the vulnerability. So you feel so vulnerable that you're trying to hide. So then she did research to try and understand what about people who feel great and happy with life and behind it all there's also vulnerability the solution actually is vulnerability but a vulnerability where you're able to say i love you to someone before they say back to you that they love you really hard moments for me was sharing some of these vulnerabilities and feelings and emotions that i had why well, i don't know why we're talking about this but hey what stage in your life did you start sharing this Probably the, f the first time that I can really remember is talking to my parents in my 20s because I'd been found with weed and I'd ended up 
being arrested, but I was underage, so I was just given a caution and released. But then telling them that it was more than that, that it wasn't just weed, it was acid and crack, cocaine and you name it. And I'd been a dealer, a very bad dealer, I have to say. <laughs> so that was a really hard thing to do. It's really hard to, to tell people, but it's also liberating once you're able to do that, once you're able to deal with your hurt, but also the hurt that some of that causes to other people. Did that propel you in a certain direction after you admitted things to your parents and was this weight lifted off your shoulder? It wasn't like, okay, that's it. It's done. Cause you know, I continued to make huge and horrendous mistakes, you know, but I think over time, just building up the courage and the strength to actually face it to yourself, that's really hard. And then subsequent to that, being honest with, with other people that matter to you in your life. But I encourage people to embrace that courage. One of the concepts we talk about in workshops, and I learned a lot of this from our human-centered design, design thinking lead globally, Jason Gajkowski, who's become a mentor to me in many ways. The notion of active listening and how do you get to shared clarity? So we'll go in a workshop and talk about shared clarity, but even just shared clarity between two human beings, even just like me and you having a conversation to actually listen, really, really properly listen to someone is a hard thing. And we don't do it most of the time. We're full of our own narratives in our own heads. So actually taking the time to listen, some breakthrough moments. And this is, and I, I even talking about this year, I'm 50 years old. I should know better, but I don't think the learning journey ever ends. Actually saying to myself, I'm just going to listen right now in this conversation I'm having with important people in my life. I'm just going to listen to them and really seek to understand them. I'm not trying to fix a problem because a lot of time when we're listening with people we care about or in a work setting, we feel like there's a problem that we need to fix. And so we're going straight to the solution. And quite often they're not looking for a solution. In fact, we don't understand what they're actually really saying. So you've got to take that time to, to understand these little phrases you can use, like just help me to understand what do you mean when you say something? And okay, so you're saying this, and giving some space for people to talk more. That's an incredibly liberating experience. But if you go back to what we were just talking about, for me and my journey, that it's also important to listen to yourself. Mm. I was talking to a friend yesterday who had a near-death experience, clinically dead for a couple of minutes. He was talking about the, the way he prays now, but it's more of a conversation. So again, it's just a bit of space, a bit of chance to listen to your brain, or your spirit or God, or however you conceptualize that. There's a little voice inside sometimes. You need to give a bit of space to listen to it. So yeah. I don't know how we got to this conversation. I, I was gonna ask actually, have you always been like this? I mean, it's, it's clearly an evolution over a few decades, Yeah. but I can, I can imagine there had to have been a seed of this, even in your younger days. So now the work that I do is design thinking, human-centered design, innovation, and a lot of it is getting groups together and finding new ways to understand the challenges of that organization or, or sometimes just that individual, a reframing of the perspective. And for me, it's starting to bring together a lot of disparate threads of my life. So I've, I've always had an interest in spirituality, particularly inspired by Buddhism and aspects of Hinduism you know, I was a Rasta briefly because <laughs> I read the Bible. I uh, read part of the Quran because obviously there's a lot of Shi Shia um, Islam in our family background. Mm -hmm. 
and then practiced Buddhism for a while. I went to temples and meditated and read about. So I've always just really enjoyed that. I've always loved psychology and, you know, behavioral psychology, how the brain works, neuroplasticity. I've always enjoyed that. I've always loved innovation and technology. And I've always enjoyed working with people. And I've always enjoyed the notion that there's some kind of framework or process or structure to what we're doing, but that will take us to find something completely new, something that we didn't know that my favorite projects are the ones where we don't know what it is we're trying to achieve. We just don't know what the end result is. And then we work together and, and there'll be aha moments as you go like, all right, that's what our customers are looking for. This is what the employees care about. This is the opportunity. The new technology enables this. This is what our brand really stands for. We could do this. I love that journey. How do you manage something like that when, like you say, there are no guarantees? You don't know what the outcome is, when it will happen. Hmm. At the end of the day, a client is still like, hey, we've been in this room now for five days or two months. We've been trying to figure this out. What's your budget? Wait, are you serious? Based on the budget, you can get to a solution in a certain period of time? Oh, now what's your budget? <laughs> we reveal the secrets of the dark arts, you know? I'll send you the invoice later. Without revealing any secrets, I'll just give you an example. Recently, I just loved it so much, which is someone saying to me, I don't know what it is. You don't know what it is. I, I know that there's certain facets of it. There's certain characteristics I can describe to you of it. And you'll hear different people in the organization and in the partners that we're working with, we hold certain things. Those things are the tools. They're, they're the tools we're going to use in order to get to something. And that's what I'm trying to work out. What is this thing? The long-term, big picture, we need to work out what that thing is. So that brief, that's a nightmare to try and scope, right? Those kind of things are really, really challenging from a practical business perspective. But the briefs like that are so inspiring. And so part of what then needs to be done is you need to give some kind of form and structure. And actually, it's not an either or. The form and structure is so, so crucial. The constraints are so, so crucial because you can't take that voyage into the unknown without anything. You need some kind of a... It's not a map because you don't actually know where you're going to sometimes, but you need some navigational... You need a compass, some way that can guide you through. And so we have a very, very structured methodology. It's very specific activities, times that you do it, how you do it. I plan workshops down to the five, 10 minutes with the team. We're just constantly working how we're going to run the different sections, what's individual, what's breakouts. So we'll do all of that to a huge amount of detail because we need the structure to help people to feel comfortable. But what they're actually going to do is very uncomfortable. At times, it's very uncomfortable. If I'm sharing with you now some of the skeletons in my closet, we're also asking our clients to share some of their skeletons. If I'm going to ask them to really listen to each other, I need to really listen to them. If I'm going to ask them that maybe their insight will come when they dream about it, then I also need to be ready to go that deep and dream about things because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. At its, at its finest, but also at its most challenging, it can be a really, really tough, uncomfortable process to go through. But I think that is kind of necessary. You think about the challenges any of us have today just as human beings in a pandemic. We don't necessarily know what's coming next. People get very angry, quite often justified anger. 
as part of that anger, they'll rant because they're being impacted so terribly as humans and their families and people they know are dying and people that they know are losing their jobs. And it's hugely, hugely pressurizing. As part of that ranting, you might say, this is how it should be done. The people who run my government, they're all idiots. They shouldn't be doing that. They should be doing this. But I think there's also a truth behind that, which is none of us necessarily know what the hell we should be doing because we've never lived through something like this. And the companies that we work with, if we're working for a company or if we're working for an NGO, if we're doing a startup, none of us necessarily know how we should be reacting to this. And so we need to be, I, I feel, and our process calls for some vulnerability. We need to feel a bit vulnerable. We need to be a bit uncertain. We need to be a bit open. Now, all of that can be crushing. So we also need some positivity, some optimism, some childlike desire to play in order to, to have some fun going through this process, to carry through this load, and to take us to a point of prototyping and innovating and coming up with, with our, our best guess of what we can do, and then the courage to test it with the human beings that will ultimately use whatever this thing is that we're developing, and the courage to say, well, maybe that idea was wrong. Failure is such a huge part of this. So I don't know, if, if we want to talk about failure, we can talk about that as well. Actually, I had a lot of my questions around failure because there was something that you actually put on your LinkedIn around okay. the time you were in China.com and right. it had a massive boom and bust. Yeah. And you actually described that time in your career as explosive growth and even more implosive bust. Right. <laughs> the digital consulting model we had was spot on. What was that? <laughs> What, why was that a failure? Why was it a failure? We grew uh, really fast and there was hubris, the hubris, that sense of we are the visionaries, we know the future, and the rest of you don't. In the digital world of the internet, we know, we are the gurus, right? And we we're like 20-something idiots, <laughs> you know? Smart, smart, well-meaning, capable, fast, and actually spot on with the vision. And I, and I say that because we were a mix of people that had come from Anderson Consulting, which became Accenture and agencies and technology. I was from a tech company. We were that mix. If you look at consultancies today, that's exactly what they are. If you look at the agencies who are actually um, looking like they'll survive, that's exactly what they are. So all of that was right. But the hubris, it almost felt like we rubbed people's noses in it. The traditional companies you guys are dead, but don't worry, we're going to come and save you. We had, and the company on its secondary listing in NASDAQ, and the ticker symbol was CHINA, China, and it was digital. The day trading money flopped. And on the secondary listing, we raised $400 million. That just sat in the bank. I mean, in those days, you get like 10% interest. So our objective was not to lose more than $40 million. And even that we fucked up. We lost more than that. You know, one event in Singapore, we had a, a launch event with a golf tournament. Over a million dollars was spent on that. We had the Miller-Hyman chairs. And it was like that full extravagance of the dot-com boom, you know. And then the whole thing crashed. And we had to stack people. And that, to me, was one of the hardest experiences of my life. Because I was 20-something and I'd inspired some kids, some of them straight out of college, with this vision of we're building the future and I was running a tech team. We had 45 people and we sacked, I think, 14 out of, out of that team. People, even a few months ago, I told them that, you know, I've talked to their CEO and there will be no job cuts. We're going to power through this together. This is the future. This is the right course. Stay the course. 
and then sacking them all was a traumatic experience. It really was. Are there places in the industry now where you see that hubris? If you look at the Robin Hood traders, there's certain elements of that day trader type hubris. In companies, I'm not really seeing it inside of companies right now because I think the, the speed and intensity of what, what's happened is huge. I think that actually this message of we do need to be vulnerable, we do need some uncertainty, it's, it's a very strange thing to say, but we need to use that in a positive way. Now we can finally admit to ourselves. All of our projections were just made up stories anyway. That nice linear growth projection that everyone makes. How come every year it's always going to grow in a linear fashion? Every single projection is the same. Life doesn't work like that. So I think something like this allows an opportunity for people to say there's a certain element of this that we just don't know what's going to happen. Doesn't mean we won't put in our projections. We have to. We will. We're an organization. But it, we should also be honest with ourselves and with our communities, our stakeholders, that there's elements of this that, that is, we don't know, that there's risk, there's unknowns, and we're trying to put the best plan we can in to mitigate those things. The notion of a pre-mortem, something that I'm thinking a lot about at the moment, what are the pre-mortems we could do to try and predict What's challenges? A pre-mortem? To so predict, yeah, predict, predict what might go wrong and plan for them? So when projects go wrong, you do a post-mortem so everyone gets around and, you know, why did it go wrong? And sometimes they become blame games and the good ones will be like, okay, here's all the things we should do differently in the future. And then you go off and maybe, you know, maybe you institute some of those, maybe you don't, who knows? And if you do institute, it often just becomes bureaucracy, which is like a sledgehammer for a job of a scalpel at times. A pre-mortem says, okay, now we've got a plan. Now let's imagine that we're in a year's time in the future and we've launched a program and it failed. Why did it fail? Okay, so now you're trying to think about what are all the things that could have gone wrong? And then you're also trying to think about, well, what are the things that actually, maybe some of the things we shouldn't have done, but maybe there was one or two of the things that we should have done more of. What are the things that we should have spent more time really focused on? Amplifying, what are the other things that we shouldn't have done? What kinds of things could have caused failure? Cultural reasons, marketplace reasons, things we just didn't think about. Our customers didn't even want it. What are the possible reasons that it could fail? You, you, just, you kind of work through that and then say, okay, let's update our plan now. What else can we do to make our plan more robust? When you work with younger people on your team, whether it was when you were building out your own agency or now, mm-hmm. what kind of things do you hope to instill in them? Because they're coming into the industry at a very different time from when you and I came into it. Yeah. And I've I've read a lot about how younger people are a lot more worried now about finances and the future. Yeah. What are you looking to impart to them that they, they bring with them throughout their career and life? Yeah. That's another great question. <laughs> you just, you just like, you just, you just throwing them up and bam, whacking them over. <laughs> this is just hardcore. Take your time. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, I was just buying a bit of time there. <laughs> a lot of the things that we've talked about, there's sort of emotional resilience, particularly through the catastrophic 
crisis type experiences that I've had that really did feel traumatic to me at the time. But finding some element of resilience to be able to, to, to deal with them and hoping that doesn't have to be quite as traumatic for anyone else who I can help or who might seek my help. And I think the difference is actually just the being able to talk about it. The vulnerability that is where you have some sense of self-worth and where the person listening to you is someone that really seeks to listen to you. It's such a simple thing, but it's so amazingly transformative to be able to do that. So I seek to do that and I also seek to help, just as Jason has helped me to think in that way, I seek to help others and I hope that they do this as other people. This notion of pay it forward, we all have shit to deal with and we've all got this highly critical voice in our head that's going, nah, 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 and that's okay. That's that's okay when, when you get that everyone has that. And so when you can just relax a little bit about that and be a little bit open about that and we can share with each other about that, that helps to relieve some of the pressure. I, I've, I really feel for young people because I feel like they're under such intense pressure of a different nature to the kind of pressure that you and I might have had growing up with sort of always on social media life and also just getting a bit of space away from that, knowing that that's not the only world. There's also an internal world and it's really worth getting in touch with that. There's this one aspect of emotional honesty and listening to yourself and then listening to others. That's really, really important. And I feel like I actually have a set of skills now which matter and which are meaningful and which are valuable. And I'm talking specifically around this human-centered design capability that we're building up. You need some hard skills around an academic understanding of why we do certain things, why the methodology is how it is, what does the research say? And there's a wealth of research around the way that the brain works, the way that we learn, why we do do some things, why we don't do some things, why uh, culture is the number one reason that transformations fail. What are the causes of that? What can you do to mitigate that? So, so you need some hard academic reading education to understand that stuff. You need some practical experience to go through this process. And every time you go through this process with, with a person or people or an organization or a whole ecosystem, when you start to think about a systemic level, every time you go through that, you learn something new. And then there, the soft skills are actually the difference between success and failure quite often. I don't actually see them as separate. Design thinking is no longer something that people haven't heard about. Most people have heard of design thinking. And a significant number of people have been through some kind of design thinking training. Certainly read about it. They've maybe been on a course or two. But what we often find is that the way that we do it is able to lead people to break through an insight that they might have not had before if it was a bit more academic. Mm. We don't really focus on that. We really focus on giving you a space. I'll give you an example. I could talk to you about cognitive bias. Everyone has cognitive bias. And I could show you the data that proves that everyone has cognitive bias. Then in a workshop, everyone get really excited and we'll talk about this uh, wonderful insight that we have on which we're building a solution. Now, what if the opposite of that insight were true? So, okay. Hmm. Well, let's just take the example you, you gave. So you said, you know, young people today are really, was it stressed? What if the opposite were true? Mm. What if young people today are actually really, really chill? Or I'll hear a lot of, a lot of people, my, my generation saying like, oh my God, young people, they're so lucky. They got it all laid out for them on a plate. 
And so I sometimes want to say to them, well, what, yeah, but what if the opposite were true? What if actually they have it harder than you ever had it? Whether that's true or not, you start to open up a spectrum of, of possibility in people's thinking. So that's a great example of the data clearly shows that we all have cognitive biases, but we're inside the cognitive bias. So showing me the market research or the academic study that proves that doesn't necessarily help me. But when I force your brain to contemplate what if the opposite were true, suddenly you have a mechanism to, at least for a moment, think about the opposite thing that you normally don't. So you could say that's a soft skill, but there's hard reasons why we, why we, why we do wow. that. I'm going to look back and say, there's probably things I said that I shouldn't have said. <laughs> But I also feel slightly liberated that I said that. How do you imagine the next phase of your career looking like? Yeah, yeah. There's another one to me. The honest truth is, is I, I, I don't know. Not that I don't think about it. It's that on different days, I imagine different outcomes. And I quite like that. I, I like the notion of possibility. I feel alive when I have possibility. And I feel stressed and I feel overwhelmed when it's like, I've just got this to-do list and I've got to bah, 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 through a to-do list. I don't like that feeling. So I've said to many people, and I might've said to you before, I always imagine myself doing another startup. So some days I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do another startup. And then other days when I, and I feel a bit achy, a bit old, and I'm like, oh, bones are hurting, <laughs> you know, a bit hard to get out of bed. I'm not sure I have the energy for another startup. I'm really, really enjoying the work I'm doing now. I really enjoy the workshops, even though they're really hard to prepare for, but I really enjoyed those moments when like, wow, we, we went on a journey together and we discovered something that could be hugely meaningful. And I love these longer innovation processes that, that we get involved with doing stuff like that. Um, I really enjoy working with my colleagues and I enjoy both learning from them and I enjoy any time I get to help someone to embrace a new idea or a new approach. It's very cool. Now. Someone asked me to mentor them, which is a bit of an honor actually for me. And so I've started to use some of these same things in mentorship. And that seems to be a really powerful tool there as well. I'm like, well, that's another thing I could do. I could just become a mentor, life coach type thing. I don't know. There'd be a line to your door. And I'm not just sucking up for this guy. <laughs> that's very nice of you to, to say so, you know? <laughs> So well, I said, I, my invoice is in, in the post, so <laughs> I guess that makes you one of my clients now. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I could see all of that. And then in terms of folks there, I mean, definitely sustainability, as you, you know, it's like a huge passion because I think for a lot of us who are a bit later on in our careers, you look at it and you're like, shit, I didn't mean to, it wasn't a plan, but I've ended up contributing to a terrible, terrible way of living and some terrible, terrible practices, frankly like selling people crap that they don't need. But we can use those same skills in a different way. Now we get a better understanding that this is unsustainable. We need to change. And, and I'm really lucky to be working on some projects in that area with some great, great clients. So that is wonderful. I love that. Education. Our education system is broken, I think. And a lot of the things that I'm doing and that we're seeing, I think, apply to education. So that'd be really cool to take human-centered design principles and just rethink the education system. So there's a wealth of things like that that I'm really, really excited by. But I'd like to take it maybe at a little bit of a slower pace than I have before, you know? I mean, you have time. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to live to 100, minimum, minimum. Then you have to upload your brain and memories to some kind of cloud system, apparently. But there you go.
Thanks for listening to Foolish Careers. If you enjoyed this episode, there's more where that came from. Just subscribe to the Foolish Careers newsletter. You'll get a new story a week featuring a storyteller, artist, or creative entrepreneur in Asia who ignored the advice to get a more sensible career. So subscribe today at foolishcareers.asia. We look forward to hearing from you.